0: Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 70, July 18th to July 24th, 1862. Before we get started, I do want to mention we should have another Patreon episode, and this is going to be very similar to the Gaines's Mill Patreon episode from last month so this time we went to Malvern Hill. I know we're doubling up on the picture slideshows and explaining the modern day battlefields but seemed to be the best time to do that. Malvern Hill along with Gaines's Mill are two of my favorite battlefields in the Richmond area. It's very easy to understand the terrain I think of Malvern Hill especially through pictures sometimes it's a little bit difficult to understand topography and and why it turned out the way it did in the battle but I think Mulfern Hill is a great site where you can really understand that so check out that picture slideshow if you think that sounds interesting and of course I have my commentary on what you're looking at as well so once again that is the Patreon feed Thank you so much for your support. Last episode, we talked about cavalry raids with Morgan and Forrest. The CSS Arkansas is operational and has engaged Farragut, making it tougher to take the already strong Vicksburg. This week, we'll talk about Lincoln and some laws, which sounds exciting. First, I want to have a little wrap-up in Virginia, now that we have had some time to process the seven days. We're now one week removed from the conclusion of the seven days, so I think it's a good time to really take stock of what happened. McClellan is able to get his Army of the Potomac to Harrison's Landing, named as such for William Henry Harrison and that Harrison family. Lee pursues, but he does not attack. Effectively ending the hostilities. But McClellan is still there, and at one point, there may have been a real opportunity for him to continue operating. John Pope had an army in Northern Virginia, Burnside was now in Norfolk, and Lee seemingly was in the middle. McClellan actually came up with a new plan of attack and sent it to Halleck, who was approving of the move. Federal forces could cross the James and take Petersburg. As we have mentioned, this is already a pretty good idea, because Grant does it in 1864. Abraham Lincoln had arrived in Harrison's Landing in the meantime to see the situation for himself. Army commanders had been divided over the withdrawal of the army, and there were some who were divided over the move to Petersburg. Now, this might sound par to the course, but McClellan would then do something fairly ridiculous. He will hand Lincoln a letter essentially telling him how to run the war. Like imagine you just blew a huge project at work and then typed up an email telling your boss how to do their job properly. Let's read some. This rebellion has assumed the character of a war. As such, it should be regarded, and it should be conducted upon the highest principles known to Christian civilization. It should not be a war looking to the subjugation of the people of any state, in any event. It should not be, at all, a war upon population, but against armed forces and political organizations. Neither confiscation of property, political executions of persons, territorial organization of states, or forcible abolition of slavery should be contemplated for a moment. In prosecuting the war, all private property and unarmed persons should be strictly protected, subject only to the necessities of military operations. All private property taken for military use should be paid for or receded for, Pillage and waste should be treated as high crimes, all unnecessary trespass sternly prohibited, and offensive demeanor by the military towards citizens promptly rebuked. Military arrests should not be tolerated, except in places where active hostilities exist, and oaths not required by enactments constitutionally made should be neither demanded nor received military government should be confined to the preservation of public order and the protection of political rights. Check out that language in there. It's a kind of to-do list for Lincoln. In fact, we can really break this down, and the language is very clear, but essentially what McClellan is saying is that we need to wage a lighter war without abolition of slavery The part that really strikes me is we're not going to take oaths or anything in terms of coming back into the fold of the United States even. So it's a very soft approach to war. But if there's one thing that the Seven Days really showed the Union is that there was a need for a hard war. In fact, a harder war than McCollin was willing to wage. Lincoln, to the disappointment of McClellan, would not react. McClellan would get ready to hatch the plan for Petersburg anyway, but blow up the whole idea when he was convinced Beauregard had arrived and added to Lee's numbers, which, of course, he had magically replenished from the seven days. Halleck would see through the nonsense, but any redeeming chance for Little Mac was over. Hooker would actually advance back to Malvern Hill, But nothing came of it. The Confederates would not bite, they would not take the bait. The army would start to be evacuated back to Washington in August, officially ending the campaign. I want to point out, as mentioned, the shift in thinking from the North. This hard war concept has changed as a result of the seven days. Prior, there was thinking by Democrats, among other moderates, that there were enough Unionists in the South for a peaceful conclusion. McClellan was one such Democrat who shared this thought, and it is still reflected in his letter to Lincoln. During the campaign, there are often guards placed on homesteads to prevent foraging, and escaped slaves are often returned. The fortunes of war were going the way of the North, so it's easy to think in this case to be magnanimous, in victory, and try to find less than total submission. Lack of unionist support and a display by the Confederates are going to fight it out was a change in this thinking. Many in the North would argue that the former slaves could be used in the same way that the Confederacy was currently using them toward their war effort. Obviously, these were not coming from a place of racial equality, but it was an argument toward the conclusion of the war. Facts were facts for Lincoln. He was getting the power to use former enslaved for purposes of war, which will lead to their inclusion as fighting forces. Emancipation was right around the corner. McClellan was not politically the kind of general who would be able to wage the war Lincoln and Stanton would think required. It should also be noted that during this time, even early in 1862, there is guerrilla conflict happening in a variety of different states, and this guerrilla war is changing the thought process for many Union officers. We often think that maybe the real guerrilla activity wasn't beginning until the latter stages of the war, 1863, 1864, but even as early as 1862, it's apparent that The irregular side of the conflict is going to necessitate this hard war as well. It would be the 22nd of July that would also produce a draft of the Emancipation Proclamation. Lincoln would read the draft to his cabinet on this date. We have mentioned here already that there was going to be a need for a hard war. Couple that with your bid to end the war and you can check all boxes. The seven days around Richmond had led to this decision, but the time was not yet right. There needed to be a really big win for the administration before moving it into action. Remember, things had been going well, but they were now on the back foot after McClellan's failure to take the city and his ultimate retreat. Citizens would grow more and more dissatisfied with the length and casualty count of the war. There was a faction of Democrats in the North who were known as Copperheads. The term Copperhead, of course, was meant to be negative, but they very much embraced the name, and it's kind of a cool name, I I will admit. But these were individuals who wanted to end the war instead of continuing to fight until the submission of the Confederacy. So if you combine with Copperheads in the North, who want to break off all ties, then the release would have to come certainly at the right time. Seward, among others, would likewise agree the time was not yet right, and that the act would be viewed as too radical and would not go over well with the moderates. Original wording of the act would have it listed as a measure to punish the treason, suppress insurrection, and confiscate the Confederate property. This speaks toward Lincoln's reasoning, and we can thank the Seven Days Battles. While the Emancipation Proclamation would have to wait, one law that did pass on July 8th, just to backtrack, was the Morrill Anti-Bigamy Act. Now, it is a fair thing if you said the what when you heard that, and yes, you did hear it correctly. It may surprise you to know that plural marriages were considered to be a barbaric vice, almost equal to that of slavery, and was something the Republican Party had as part of their platform way back in the 1850s. Now, of course, this would be a direct shot at the Mormons and the Church of Latter-day Saints. By this point, they had already expanded into the Utah Territory. But there is a deeper meaning to this act, which I want to go over, and we will hear in the back half of the episode. The Morrill Anti-Bigamy Act would also limit church ownership to any territory to $50,000. Lincoln would trade a lack of enforcement of these laws in exchange for the Mormons staying out of the Civil War, so there was not real follow-up to the act. Two more acts in 1882 and 1890 would be more successful in their enforcement, although the government would return any confiscated property. Today, there are only a few sects that practice polygamy. So, you maybe have heard me mention a character in our story as having served in the Utah Expedition, also known as the Utah War or Mormon War. I think we can go ahead and explain this conflict because there are some officers, especially if they served on the frontier, who may have participated, gaining some experience. Mormons first showed up in Utah in the 1840s. This newly acquired territory from Mexico seemed to be a great spot to practice religious freedom. Already in the late 1830s and 1840s, there were conflicts in Missouri and Illinois. The 1838 Mormon War had actually resulted in the death of founder Joseph Smith. Smith had been arrested and then killed by an angry mob, so that should tell you that there needed to be greener pastures. Actually, this sort of ties very nicely into the ultimate events in Bleeding Kansas and then the guerrilla activity that results in the Civil War. There was a challenge to the status quo or the way of life in Missouri. And it's very often defending that way of life that these conflicts spark from. So the Mormons coming into Missouri are sort of coming at the wrong time, and there is a violent reaction to them in that state. Brigham Young would lead the church to the Utah Territory, and at first, there were good relations between the Mormons and the federal government. If you recall all the way from our first episodes, there was this concept of popular sovereignty. Popular sovereignty, meaning essentially that people should be able to govern themselves and choose their own laws. Thank you, Stephen Douglas. Anyway, that is where things get a little murky, for the already mentioned reasoning. Plural marriages were a turnoff for the majority of the country. Remember, we are freshly into the Great Awakening at this time, so there is this religious revival, chock-full of moral standards and a sense of correctness, which included the elimination of vice, such as, say, drinking. We have already had examples of key characters from our story being teetotalers or otherwise abstaining from alcohol. Polygamy would be considered one of these vices that should be avoided, thus the hostility to the Mormon faith and the Republican ticket wishing to eliminate it, which if you think about it makes sense. They are all for ending of slavery so it could even be seen as an alternative form of slavery even. Slavery was a key issue, and perhaps there was some heat being taken away from the topic by this focus on the Mormons and their plural marriages, which ticked off the Democrats. Utah was also sort of a theocracy, which rubbed everyone the wrong way. President Millard Fillmore had named Brigham Young the governor of the territory Which, of course, appeased the Mormon congregation, but naming the head of the church to a high government position would pose an issue. You recall that whole separation of church and state thing that we like to talk about in history classes and whatnot. There were other high members of the church who were being placed into powerful government positions. Around this time in Michigan, there was what we call a Mormon separatist movement, where the leader proclaimed himself king, which probably did not ease any tensions. This, of course, was not connected to Brigham Young, though. Well, despite it being okay for the Church of Latter-day Saints, the rest of the country would grow irritated and wish for a change. Enter President Buchanan. Remember when we mentioned that there were arguments that Buchanan was the worst president of all time? Well, I hardly think that the Mormon expedition is high on the list of things against him, but it certainly does not help. Overall, the handling was poor militarily. Despite an overall avoidance of bloodshed, we can consider it a failure. In 1857, the president would remove Young as the territorial governor and instead replace him with Alfred Cummings. It should be noted that Buchanan did not actually inform Young that he had been replaced, which, as you can imagine, was an issue. Instead, there would be the movement of the military in order to ensure a peaceful transition. There were rumors of a kind of militia unit that did Young's bidding, which made the presence of the military necessary in the minds of the government. Overall, not too many men could be spared to this mission, as we should well know because Bleeding Kansas was going on. The commander of this expedition would eventually become one Colonel Albert Sidney Johnson, as General William S. Harney would be occupied in Kansas. Harney was an old soldier, serving on the frontier for many years, but would serve mostly in administrative capacities for the Union during the Civil War. On the flip side of the coin, I think we can understand that the Mormons were not sure exactly what was going on. With an army on the way, they were making preparations to defend themselves, willing to adopt a scorched-earth policy in an effort to hamper the oncoming soldiers. For all they knew, this was an attempt at further persecution, possibly even extermination. Young would recall many of the members of the church who were abroad back to the Utah Territory and seek for an alliance with natives in the area against the U.S. Army. Captain Stuart Van Villet, would arrive ahead of the army and report back as to what he had seen. Young and the Mormons would not move to open hostility, but they would attempt to harass any army coming against them. Van Villet would go back to Washington and lobby on their behalf. Meanwhile, hostilities would commence between the Mormon militia and the army in September of 1857. Amazingly, the expedition would set out without any cavalry, contrary to the common image we usually have of wars on the frontier. Mounted militia would easily stampede cattle and get away. As a response, soldiers would mount mules in an effort to combat the militia. But as we will see during the Civil War, jackass cavalry as it was known will not be effective. Johnson would arrive in November to take command. At this time, the army would be reinforced by the second dragoons commanded by Philip St. George Cook, who we know now as Jeb Stuart's father-in-law. Operations would soon cease for the winter, which allowed for negotiation. Young would send for one Thomas Kane, a Pennsylvanian who had helped the Mormons in their original trek west. Now Kane is going to help bring about a peaceful conclusion to the Mormon War, but I do want to mention him for another reason, and that is we have already had Kane in our narrative without even realizing it perhaps. He was the regimental commander of the 13th Pennsylvania Reserves, the Bucktails, who we have already seen in action in the Valley and in the Seven Days. In fact, it was Kane who had been captured prior to the Battle of Port Republic in the skirmish at Harrisonburg that killed Turner Ashby. So, in this particular scenario, it's a pretty small world. We are going to talk about it when we get to the Battle of Antietam. Of course, there will be full coverage on that battle, but, and it might surprise you to know, and maybe this is the first time you're hearing of this, there was action prior to the main day at Antietam, And there are two colonels, one on each side, that actually get killed in that fighting on the night before. And one of them is actually Thomas Kane. He gets killed in the East Woods at Antietam. So we will mention that when we get to that episode. Eventually, there would be a peaceful conclusion to the hostilities, much to the disappointment of Johnson and C.F. Smith. This was due in large part to the efforts of Kane, who reported back to Buchanan. Territorial governorship would be turned over to the federal government, which would start a gradual decline in the power that the church held in the Utah Territory. Now, there are two different massacres that did occur involving non-Mormon citizens that make this Mormon war equal bleeding Kansas. The more famous was the Mountain Meadow Massacre, where many unarmed civilians, including women and children, were massacred on their way west. This was done by Mormons who were dressed as native warriors. When President Buchanan pardoned the Mormons for their supposed insurrection against the federal government, those who participated in the massacre were not pardoned. The leader of the attack was actually tried and executed in 1877. Motivation is unclear, although it is likely a retaliation to the murder of Mormons in Arkansas, as that is where the Party of Settlers originated from. While maybe not the best way to end, it is a sad note, an example of the type of violence that could boil over with these high tensions. So, we're going to wrap it up there indeed. In this episode, we talked about McClellan and had what we might call a true rap on the Peninsula Campaign. We also had a good transition into the first draft of the Emancipation Proclamation. Finally, we had the Anti-Polygamy Act, which was a good transition into talking about the Mormon Expedition of 1857. Next week we have a few scattered events including skirmishing in Missouri and the capture of Bill Boyd, but we also have to have a little check in on Grant and see exactly what he has been up to. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Once again, feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.